All right, well, good evening. I got to tell you, God has some sense of humor. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus. mother, you know how to honor your father. You wouldn't even dream of doing this to your governor, and yet you give me the scraps. I ask for the first fruits. I demand the first fruits. You give me the scraps, and you think I should be happy. So we saw that God wanted to be, when I say wanted, it, it, it was, it, of course, he, he's God. He deserves it. But the way that the, the, the passage was phrased, he wanted to be wanted, and he wanted to be honored. And from those people, he kept saying, and from them, Verse 8, which was the key to our passage this morning, it says, From them build a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That was the key to the whole sermon, the idea that, wow, God wants to dwell with us, not just put up with us, not just tolerate us. He wants fellowship with us. We talk about having fellowship with each other, and the Bible talks about that too. But fellowship, fellowship with God, a fellowship that draws us closer to him and closer uh, to his son and closer to his spirit um, how could we not want that, but too often we're just, I don't, we would never verbalize we don't want it, but we live lives that show, yeah, thanks, but uh, I'm kind of busy doing this right now. No, he wants to be wanted, he wants to be honored, he wants to, he wants fellowship with us, and then the last point we had was that he wanted to be seen. That while you can never actually see God, you better believe that we should see him as children. Um, again, a Helen Keller quote was given that I thought was beautiful, incorporated into my sermon, where she said, the only thing worse than being blind is being able to see and yet still not see. That's true of us. As God's children, if we are all God's children, then we're not blind. We have no excuse to not see God in our life, to see him guiding us, to see him opening doors, closing doors. Yeah, it might not. In fact, a lot of times it purposely won't be what we're expecting because that's how God does things. Lean not on your own understanding. His ways are higher than our ways. But we got that idea of that he, he wants to see us because of a word that he used in verse 9. And this is where the slides actually pick up. He told Moses, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so shall you make it. That, that word show does not necessarily mean that God showed him a blueprint. It simply means that he revealed it to him. In a way that only God could, Mo, God was going to make sure that Moses knew exactly how he wanted the tabernacle to be built. And that was going to be the jumping off point for tonight. I warned you this morning, tonight's, it might not be a long sermon, but it's a long passage. It's verses 10 through 40. And yes, we are going to read all of it because I am never going to even imply that parts of God's word are more holy than others. We might get more from certain parts. I have no problem with that. But we are most certainly going to read it all. So I will ask you all to stand in honor of reading God's word. We will look at the rest of Exodus chapter 25 starting in verse 10, 
and we'll see what God has in store for us. Okay, Exodus 25, starting in verse 10, after God says in verse 9 that I will show you um, what I want you to do, he says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony, shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie, as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. You may be seated. All right, so I warned you, long passage. I have no problem admitting one that we would normally kind of skim through, right? Maybe feel that it wasn't exactly written for us. Uh, maybe we can take from it how orderly God is and, and how he has all the bases covered based on uh, how he wants us to have fellowship with him. Um, but I don't want us to fall into the trap of just thinking, well, this was important once. Because it was. I mean, in Jewish culture, this is very important. And at the time, this was God demanding this. Is, I mean, I would never want to downplay the word of God. But can I at least ask the question what it's doing in the Word of God? It could have been passed down by oral tradition. Technically, it didn't even have to get passed down at all once it was built. It can't be. We can't act like, well, this was important once, but not anymore, because God didn't have to record it. He could have recorded it in a different historical figure that didn't make it into the Bible. But he did. And it's funny, because I was just at a family party today, and if I misquote it, then I'm sorry, but I'm talking with my sister, and she's talking about, Pastor, you, you guys would probably know better, a book by Andy Stanley called Irresistible. Have you heard of it? 
Okay, and my mind thought it meant, you know, how God's irresistible, but apparently the whole point is they, they believe that, you know, that we have to stop preaching the Old Testament because that turns people off, and that just has nothing to do with us anymore. And if people could just understand the grace of Jesus and the love of Jesus and how we're not under all of those rules anymore, then they're going to want to come to Christ. And I just looked at her and I said, you do know that's heresy, right? And she didn't argue with me. Don't, don't get me wrong. She wasn't supporting the book. She was just talking about a book that she had heard about. But oh my goodness, that there are people out there who want to say that the Old Testament is obsolete, that it once served a purpose but no longer does. Can I say if that was the case, then it never should have ended up in the Bible in the first place. Then the New Testament must be obsolete because the New Testament tells me that all Scripture is inspired by God and is written for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness. All scripture is supposed to encourage me. All scripture is supposed to teach me. The Holy Spirit is supposed to be able to fall back on all scripture and speak to my heart. So the idea that the, I, I didn't know I was going to have that example a few hours ago. Like God dropped that in my lap. But it's so funny as much as I'm yelling at the idea that the Old Testament might be obsolete or that what we read about in this passage might be obsolete. Hey Sue, guess what my title is? Perfect obsolescence. That's my title. Of course I'm not saying the Old Testament's obsolete. I'm saying, Lord, I really want to understand these things better. I do. I, I want to hear the history behind it and, and the stories behind it. But in the end, can I tell you, in a way, none of what we just read does pertain to us specifically. And that's okay. Not because it became obsolete, but because from the beginning it was intended to be obsolete. We know from Hebrews 9, we're not going to turn there, it would be another long passage, but go ahead and read it. The author of Hebrews makes it so clear that those things from the beginning were only intended to point us to Christ. That they needed those things, they were vital back then because they pointed to Christ. We don't need anything that points to Christ because we have Christ. I'll be honest, the original title I was going to go with is, It's All About Christ. And you know why I didn't pick that? Because that could be the title of every sermon given from the beginning of time. Any sermon that comes out of this Bible could have been titled, It's All About Christ. But that, I don't know. I don't know. You guys know I don't talk this way. I don't walk around talking about perfect obsolescence. But it just, God just laid that on my heart that, John, it's okay. Of course it's still important, but to me, it's important for a different reason. It's important for me to see why it was important once and how now, thanks to Christ, not that I don't need this anymore, but I have even better than what this had to offer. So I, I just, I couldn't help but think about the, the different people who could have potentially been in this pulpit for this passage. I could almost guarantee you there's four of us, there would have been four different sermons. I, I'm just, that, that's just the way it is. God decides who preaches what, but for me, I am. I'm going to break down the passage, but as I break down the passage, it is going to be with the complete intent to show you how perfect God's plan was from the beginning and why his plan from the beginning was for this perfection to ultimately be obsolete. I think you understand. I'd rather preach this at the night service where I feel like I'm, you know, maybe speak preaching to the more seasoned. You know, I, I think we're all on the same page here, but I'll just trust that the Spirit will allow my words to come across in the way that I intend. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you. Even the chances of me having a family party where Kristen happens to mention a book by I mean, that's just, I know that's you. I know that's you speaking to my heart that of course your word isn't obsolete. It's never obsolete. But if you planned for something to serve a certain purpose and it has served that purpose, Lord, then I'm going to look back on it not as obsolete, but as the picture that it was intended to be of the son that you have, I don't know why you didn't have me born 2,500 years ago, Lord, or 4,000 years ago, or something when we were still looking forward to the Messiah. Lord, you have blessed me. I, aside from salvation, that might be my second thank you to you, Lord, that you saved me at such a time as this, that I am able to read your word and see your son in every Every word, every verse, every promise, every claim. So, Lord, you know my heart. I, I thank you that I'm preaching to my family. I thank you that 
I know that even if I stumble over my words or don't word things the best way, that, that they will take it in the way that your spirit intends it. Lord, I pray that every one of us can be encouraged and comforted, but also challenged and convicted that things that we probably take for granted, we only take for granted because we're on this side of the cross. And if we weren't, Lord, we would be just as urgent uh, to follow the commands of what is written uh, in this chapter. So I thank you. Thank you for getting me through this morning and fully intend that you'll do the same tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we go. Let's open up. We'll look at verses 10 through 16. Uh, just so you know, I don't think I mentioned it, but we're going to be looking at the Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat, the Table of Showbread, and the Lampstand. Okay, not a normal... Uh, <laughs> sermon. This might get kind of deep, but I'm just going to share with you how God spoke to my heart. So first, let's see what it says about the Ark of the Covenant. He says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So we've all heard of the Ark of the Covenant. We've probably all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Same thing. It has a mysticism to it, a mythical quality to it, because of how the Bible speaks of it. I know I'm a math teacher, but no, I didn't get much spiritual meaning out of the two cubits. Its dimensions were pretty much three by two by two. And yes, Hebrews tells us that it is a shadow of something that will be in heaven. So if God is doing things by scale factors, again, then that's just showing us how perfect and orderly and logical our God is. But I will not be spending any time talking about its dimensions. I will not be talk, spending any time talking about the material that was made. We discussed that this morning. That if something is to be holy, we are to make it of the best material. Gold is mentioned throughout these verses and throughout this passage. Uh, just the two things that I want to focus on that God made clear about the Ark of the Covenant. First, in verses 12 through 15, it talks about the rings how the rings were so that poles could be put through it. I think a lot of us already know this. You were not allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. You had to lift it and hold it on poles that went through rings. Um, just one of the many passages, 2 Samuel 6, 6 and 7, we're told that when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark. Again, one of the many references to the fact that this ark was hands off. This ark represented the presence of God. Just as God said, if you come running up the mountain, Moses, make sure you warn your people. They come up here, I'm going to kill them. And Lenny read from 24 last year that God made an exception that the Moses and the elders sat and ate a meal before God, and God did not destroy them. They had to make that clear, because that was the expectation, that when you came into the presence of God, you know, Moses, take your shoes off, you're standing on holy ground. We have example after example of why the Ark of the Covenant was considered so important. It represented the presence of God. And then you follow that up with verse 16, where it says, you shall put into the Ark the testimony of that I shall give you. We know the testimony means the tablets that, that Moses was going to write the rules down on. I just love that it uses the word testimony. That those tablets, which nowadays this is the version of our tablets, this is a testimony of who God is. It testifies to who he is. If we ever get there, we'll learn that ultimately they end up putting manna in there to remind them of what God did for them. And Aaron's um, staff that budded went in there. All of these reminders of things that God had done and things that God was doing, that to the Israelite represented the presence of the Lord. Uh, Matthew Henry's commentary, I like how he worded it. He says, there he manifested his presence among them. And it was intended for a sign or token of his presence that while they had that in the midst of them, 
they might never again ask, is the Lord among us or not? What a beautiful thought that they would never have to ask, is the Lord among us or not? But what an amazing thought. And please, I've already asked God to forgive me. I need you to forgive me. I might come across a little condescending here, and I do not mean it. But it was a box. I'm sorry. There was nothing magical about the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't created through sorcery. It was a box. And that's what the people had, an ark, a box. That's what allowed them to say, is the Lord among us or not? How dare we say that that's obsolete? I'm so glad I can say that's obsolete. In fact, I'm so glad that I don't just say it. God himself says it. In Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah 3, 15 and 16, he says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. Now, I'm sorry, I'm not going to get into the context of this and whether it's referring to a, a certain end time. The point is God's plan from the beginning was that it would never just be about that Ark about that box. He knew that it was intended to be obsolete. We don't know where it is right now. We don't know if it's buried in some cave. We don't know if it's in some billionaire's basement. We don't know if the government has it in Area 51. I'm going to say it's in heaven, to be honest. I just love that thought. Revelation 11:19 tells us that God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of His Covenant was seen within His temple. I know that could just be a vision. I know that could just be an illustration, but I love that thought, personally. That God said, sorry, you guys don't need this anymore. I'm going to bring it up to heaven, just kind of like a reminder of, you know, what I did for mankind, but you don't need it. You, you've got my son. What a beautiful thought. You know why the first piece of, of the temple is perfect obsolescence? Because Christ is what gives us our access. That's my first point. Christ is what allows us to never have to ask again, is the Lord among us or not? I don't know where I got this, so I can't footnote it, but um, one of the commentaries said, the contents of the ark are seen by theologians such as the church fathers and Thomas Aquinas as personified by Jesus Christ. The manna as the Holy Eucharist, Aaron's rod as Jesus' eternal priestly authority, and the tablets of the law as the lawgiver himself. That's as far as I'm going with it. I'm sorry, you want to study it more? You go right ahead. What God has laid on my heart here? John, once upon a time, it was all about a box. I mean that with so much love and so much. I love that God has allowed me to live on this side of the cross where I do not, I don't care how much gold it was made with. I don't care. I say I don't care. You know what I mean. I've got his son I've got his son that gives me access to know that God is there and that God is for me. When Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I always thought of that as, you know, so not through false teachers and not through works. But guess what? Not through the Ark of the Covenant either. <laughs> no one. That's it. That's it. it. It doesn't work. It has to be him. Ephesians 2.18 reminds us that through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That word both, if you look at the verse before, it talks about those who are far off and those who are near. It doesn't matter. As we read this, and oh my goodness, two cubits, four cubits, six cubits, eight. It is. It's a little overwhelming. Some people get into this stuff, and I thank God. I had made the comment that, for me to learn more about this, I probably need to be in the pew and not in the pulpit. Because in the pulpit, I'm going to share how it speaks to my heart, and then in the pew, I get to hear how it speaks to someone else's. But I cannot, I'll tell you right now, I get chills when I read that and see how important it was. And just look at society, look at history, how important the Ark of the Covenant was. And you know why it's okay for me to not know every nook and cranny of the Ark of the Covenant? Because I have Jesus. Because I have Christ, because I have access. And let's be honest, Christ isn't the ark. Christ is the high priest. We know that. 
He's not some object. I know that. But my point is, why is that perfectly obsolete now? Because all the ark was ever supposed to do was be a placeholder for people to know that God was in their midst until Jesus came along. He said, don't worry, guys. Now I got this. So amen. Amen. The first piece of perfect obsolescence is the ark of the covenant because Christ gives us our access. Now let's read about the mercy seat. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So if you didn't catch on, all the mercy seat was, I don't mean it that way, it was a cover for the Ark of the Covenant. So that seems a little weird. Like most people don't show up to potluck Sunday saying, so I brought a pot of pasta, oh, I brought the lid too. Like it's kind of a package deal. And the mercy seat, if you really think about it, needed to be a package deal. Don't answer why, but think for a second. Why did the Ark of the Covenant have to come with a mercy seat? See, I've been reeling you guys on all day. All day I've been talking about how awesome it is that God wants to dwell in our midst. How lucky we are that God wants to dwell in our midst. Are you nuts? A bunch of sinners who have a holy God dwelling in their midst and you are not scared to death? No, because the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence, but the mercy seat was right on top. God wasn't in the box. God was residing above the box, above his law, above his presence, pretty much saying, come to me. The reason it was called a mercy seat, think about it. Before they even had the law, God was already making a lid saying, trust me, kid, you're going to need this. But don't worry. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that's what we recognize it as, they still serve it today. It's still a very solemn occasion where they come before God and the high priest professes the sins for the people. Again, I knew I wasn't going to explain it the best, so I took this from uh, Got Questions. A lot of us know the website Got Questions. It says, before entering the tabernacle, meaning on the Day of Atonement, Aaron was to bathe and put on special garments, then sacrifice a bull for a sin offering for himself and his family. The blood of the bull was to be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. Then Aaron was to bring two goats, one to be sacrificed because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. And its blood was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. The other goat was used as a scapegoat. Aaron placed his hands on its head, confessed over it the rebellion and wickedness of the Israelites, and sent the goat out with an appointed man who released it into the wilderness. The goat carried on itself all the sins of the people, which were forgiven for another year. I have a confession to make. If that wasn't in the word of God, I'd be mocking it right now. Did you hear about that religion that thinks that they can cast their sins on a goat? What in the world? But you know something? Once upon a time, that's exactly how God wanted to do it. The mercy seat was not a quote-unquote judgment seat where they would come before God to determine if they were guilty or innocent. Their guilt was, they were well aware of their guilt. They needed mercy. They needed a payment for their sins so that they wouldn't have to pay it themselves. Uh, the mercy seat was also known as a propitiatory covering. I probably didn't say that well, but I came close. Guess what word that sounds like? Propitiation. And guess what verse that sounds like? 1 John 2, 2. That he, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole 
world, no, that does not mean that a whole world's sins are taken care of. It means that he is the only way that you are truly going to be forgiven. I was going to use the word forgiven, and instead I went with the word justification. That Christ gives us justification. Justification means that we can stand before him and not be condemned and not have to go back once every year knowing we were guilty but bringing an extra goat so that they can take the guilt with them. It's actually a beautiful picture, extremely merciful of God. To me, that's not... All right, you want me to forgive you? Here, bring me a goat. Like, wow, that's extremely merciful. But I could argue not as, much, not as merciful as, all right, you need forgiving? I'll tell you what, I'll give you my son. That's mercy. That's love. That's grace. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He has fulfilled the law that once upon a time the Jews had to come every year because they kept breaking it. And a goat would only buy them a year's worth of forgiveness, and then they had to go through it all over again. Jesus has fulfilled the law. I don't know why I just thought of this, but you know these, these shows with you know time machines... I'll tell you, if I ever jump in a time machine, I'm still staying on this side of the cross. I'll tell you that much. I don't want to go back to a time where I needed to trust an imperfect system by definition. That's how God made it. When I can be on this side and know that his son has fulfilled it for me. Galatians 3, 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. We don't need to cast our sins on a goat. We don't need to come before a mercy seat. I know I didn't talk much about the cherubim, but it was a beautiful idea that I'd read in the one that their, their wings like just kind of gave the people gave the high priest protection from God. <laughs> there was that, that veil between. Jesus gives us that. Romans 10:4, the Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Oh my goodness. If you're not a Christian, then you probably have no idea what I'm saying. Or you're extremely convicted. I, I hope it's the second one. But oh my goodness, those of us who know what I'm talking about, when's the last time you were thankful that you didn't have to trust a goat for God to give you mercy? Like, that doesn't even occur to us. But when's the last time you thanked Christ that it doesn't need to occur to us? That Exodus 25 is allowed to be obsolete in its literal sense, because all it was ever supposed to do was point to Christ. And we're in 2022 when we get to look back on what Christ already did for us. That's what gives us the confidence that Hebrews 10 talks about. Starting in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We could devote a whole sermon to that. I'm sure we did back when we did Hebrews. But what a beautiful thought that for what Christ has done, we can approach God with confidence. I'm assuming a lot of us heard the story about the rope around the ankle in case God got upset with the high priest. That's not actually in the Bible, so I don't know if they did it or not, but I could understand why. As they, once a year, uh, Lord, remember me? Yeah. Uh, we sinned even more this year, but uh, here's another goat. Like, I can't even make fun of that, because why isn't that me? Why am I not saying, all right, Lord, I know, here we go again, but could you please forgive me? I'll be honest, I'm more like, well, sorry, Lord, I know I did it again, but thanks for forgiving me. Like, I'm so comfortable with it. I'm so okay with it. And I need to be reminded that I would be Exodus 25 if he had not allowed me to live on this side of the cross. Uh, just to look at a few more encouraging verses, Hebrews 4, 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's always worth quoting scripture. Don't get me wrong. But there's so much comfort in those verses that I'm not sure we need. I, I don't know. 
I don't know what heart you came here with. Did you come here with a guilty one that you're not sure God's going to forgive you? Guess what? Because of his son, you've got forgiveness like they, <laughs> they couldn't even imagine back then. But I think most of us are so comfortable with that forgiveness that we got to remember, don't be. <laughs> Fear and trembling. There was a time when a, a poor guy had to step into the presence of the Lord and just hope that he would accept their offering to have their sins forgiven. And they had to do it year after year after year. And we don't because of what Christ did for us. And again, I look around the room and I can only pray that everyone here knows exactly what I'm talking about and has accepted that gift. All right, table of the showbread. Two more items. The table of showbread. Verse 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around its hand breadth, a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense. And its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Again, I'm not going to talk too much about this. But this morning, a very good intentioned person started talking to me about the table of showbread and giving me the original Hebrew and telling me that the bread means faces and things that I had read in commentaries, but I just had to politely smile and nod and thank you, and I'm sorry. I'm sure there's so much detail that I could give you here. I, I just got to tell you how it speaks to my heart. The way this speaks to my heart is mostly in that last verse. You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Okay, this bread was important stuff. Like, they don't even necessarily get into it here. But if you look at Leviticus 24, 5 and 7 through 7, it's going to pop up there. It says, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them into two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Like, this was... Very specific stuff. How to make the bread. How to lay the bread out. Again, the, the phrase show bread technically does mean bread of faces. And some people believe that it was to represent the faces of, of the past, how God always provided. And some felt that since it was 12, it was the faces of the tribe of Israel. And some felt that somehow it was the faces of the Trinity. I, I don't know. All I know is I have a feeling some of you are, think I'm about to say, well, Christ is our bread. Sorry, I'm not going to do it. I, I wanted to. It was the easy connection. But in my opinion, and come up and tell me afterwards, because I'm always ready to be sharpened, you, when Christ referred to himself as the bread of life, it's because people were seeking physical bread. They were following after him because they wanted to be fed, and he said, this bread's nothing. I'll be the bread of life. You will never hunger. You will never thirst. I'm not sure that that's exactly... When they would walk into the temple, the first thing they would see was the showbread facing towards God. And I don't think it was, I guess part of it was remembering that he provided for them, but it was on such a beautiful table. It was really like set up for fellowship, like we talked about this morning. I don't think it was as simple as, guys, come to me if you want to eat. I don't mean that sarcastically. I'm speaking from the heart. I think that it was just always supposed to serve as a reminder that God keeps his promises, that God wants to fellowship with them, that God would provide for them like he had in the past. And that word promise is kind of, I don't know when it first came into my mind, but it's what I latched on to here. I'm not saying, again, I might preach this another time and I'll come up with something completely different. But what I take from the bread, the reason why I don't need that bread there anymore isn't because I'm not hungry. I, I, I don't know. Like that bread stayed there for six days and then, they would take it and replace it with new bread and then eat that bread like it was ceremonial to eat it. We know that David once ate it because he really was hungry and some people thought he should get in trouble for that, but I don't know. Instead of going with Christ as our bread, which he is, I know he is, I went with Christ as our promise. 
that I don't need a table before me literally to remind me that God wants to fellowship with me and to remind me that he will. I have Christ for that. Christ is my seal for all of these things. Hebrews 8, 6 says, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Again, out of the four, this is the one where I'm, I'm, I'm really just speaking from the heart. It's how it spoke to me. Maybe my title should be Christ is our bread, but to me it's that promise. Again, just the idea that every time they walked in, that was the first thing they saw. Not just the bread, but the layout and the, and the beautiful cups. And the, He says he sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Just these promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. I knew I wasn't going to spend much time on that point. Again, this morning somebody tried to help me on a much deeper and heady level. and <laughs> So I don't know. I don't know. If you guys have something to share with me, I'd love to hear it. But that's definitely how that spoke to my heart, that as the bread was laid out before them, a constant reminder of God's provision and love and desire to fellowship, um, I think it was just a reminder of his promises, and I'm thankful that Christ has put the spirit in me that will always guarantee me the promises of God. All right, so last point, the lampstand. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of, made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower. On one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it with a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain." Interestingly, it's the last item, and it's the one that I got the most out of the details. Uh, if you practically want to know why there was a lamp there, it's because, and I feel like I didn't mention this this morning, I don't know why, the tabernacle was a tent. They, it traveled around with them. It had to be collapsed and, and brought. So there was no windows. There was no light. Like this lampstand is the one thing that allowed them to see the table of showbread and everything going on within the tent. So, of course, there had to be a lamp. But if I were to ask you, what kept getting repeated there? Yes, that it was made of gold, but more specifically, it kept repeating one piece of gold. It wasn't pieces that got screwed together or anything like that. It had to be made from one piece of gold, which I believe beautifully symbolizes the body of Christ. That Christ is that one light, and everything doesn't get attached to him, but is him, like a body. My arm didn't get screwed on. This is one body. So I love that it says it's one piece. I love that it didn't say it was just one light. Christ is our light. I probably should have said that. That's my next point. But God could have easily had it one light that just shone so mysteriously and miraculously bright. He could have done that. But no, it was one light with six lights reaching out for it. We call it a menorah now, if you're wondering what it looked like. And, and that's just a beautiful thought. I mean, John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. But then Matthew 5, 16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think that's beautiful, that while Christ is our light, we shine as well. He allows us, as his bride, as his body, to shine to the world. It uh, talks about almond flowers, almond blossoms. Um, they were always the first things to blossom. In January, February, when like nothing else was, these things were blooming. These things were becoming fruitful. Like 
there was a lot of symbolism in the lampstand that actually spoke to me more than, um, than, than the other items did. But again, give me one moment of... We don't say we don't need a lampstand because we have electricity. You understand? We say we don't need the symbol of the lampstand because we have Christ. Because we have his spirit inside of us. Uh, we just have to be careful like in verses uh, 1 John 1, 5 through 7, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So just a beautiful verse that reminds us he is the light. And yes, we are light, but if we want to have fellowship with him, we need to walk in that light so that we can shine uh, the way the lampstand was intended. So that's how God spoke to my heart. Again, I, I hope you focus on the word perfect as much as you focus on the word obsolescence. I will never think that there is any portion of scripture that no longer speaks to our heart. I refuse. And if I'm able to do a sermon on premarital sex, sorcery, uh, bestiality, and I mean, you guys remember, we have had some, and pastor on what to do when somebody throws your ox in the water. Whew, God's really been uh, stretching us as far as looking in his word, seeing what it says, and fighting that temptation to say, well, yeah, but that's not really for us anymore. Maybe to the letter it's not, but to the spirit, of course it is, or it wouldn't be in here in the first place. So I hope you guys keep coming. I thank you for the encouragement that you do keep coming in some sometimes weighty passages, but amen that God has put a spirit in us that helps us understand it, speak to our heart, and draw us closer to him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I know what I wanted to say. I just have no idea if I said it. And I thank you that that's not my job. Lord, your word was read, your word was preached, and one of your children shared how it spoke to his heart. Lord, that's it. You, you got to do the rest. You've got to decide if this was supposed to comfort, if it was supposed to convict, if it was supposed to educate, Lord, whatever it might be. I just humbly thank you for this opportunity. Lord, it's humanly speaking, I would have much rather heard what someone else got from this, as I'm sure I would have learned a lot through that, but I ended up learning a lot through what you showed me, and I thank you. Once again, I thank you for those who have given their lives, Lord. I do not ever want to take that for granted. I know I don't want tomorrow to just be an excuse for a day off on a barbecue. Thank you so much for this country that you've given us, for the freedoms that we do have that, as we heard this morning, so many other people don't have. Lord, I pray we honor you through that freedom as well as through the persecution that is most certainly right around the corner. I thank you for this morning of reminding us what it is you want and then for tonight, Lord, of how amazingly spoiled we are because we live on this side of the cross and everything that your son has done for us so that we no longer need things that once upon a time were of vital importance. Lord, I thank you again for your word, for its power, and for how it speaks to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. I, I just laughed, though, that you said it was going to be short, and you filled us with so much information, and I was so happy to hear every one of it. Um, as you see the theme that we've been singing, come praise and glorify, he is our God. And we're going to end with 56 in the hymnal, to God be the glory. If you would stand with me, open up your hymnals. 56, to God be the glory. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. 
Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he hath done. O oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he hath done. Great things he has taught us, great things he hath done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son, but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he hath done. And then let's just close with the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Enjoy your weekend.